Well, let's get to it. Luke, the gospel of Luke. Uh, let's get to it. 19, Luke chapter 19. As we continue, we have a lot of work to do tonight and I don't want to stay too late because, uh, you know, roads weren't too bad though tonight, right? The side roads are the worst ones. The freeway is money. Uh, you can sail along no problem at all, but uh, some of those little side roads are a little slippery, but but I'm glad that you're here. Uh, knowing the Bible is worthwhile, don't you think? Sam um, was asked by a panel, what part of the Bible do you like the best? Um, he was being interviewed for the youth pastor position by a panel of elders in the church of a certain congregation. Well, sir, I like the New Testament, sir. Well, what book in the New Testament? I, I like, I, I believe the book of parables, sir. Um, and one of the elders said, well, you, would you kindly relate one of those parables uh, to this council? Sam, you know, uh, feeling the pressure, wanted to be thought of as knowledgeable. So he thought the council would know much more about the Bible than he would. So he decided just to make a big, bold attempt. Um, and it went as follows. Once upon a time, a man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves. And thorns grew up and choked that man. He went on and had no money, so he met the queen of Sheba, and she gave that man, sir, 1,000 talents of gold and of silver and 100 changes of raiments. And then he was driving along under a big tree and got his hair caught in a limb. And there, they, they left him hanging there. Yes, sir, he hung there many days and many nights, but the ravens came and brought him food to eat and water to drink. And one night when he was there hanging there asleep, his wife Delilah came along and cut his hair off. He dropped to the ground and fell on stony ground. It began to rain for 40 days and 40 nights and he hid himself in a cave where the man went out on the highways and byways and compelled them to come in. He went, in, uh, he went on and came to Jerusalem and saw Queen Jezebel sitting high up on a window. When she saw him, he laughed and said, throw her down out of there. And so they threw her down and he said, throw her down again. And they threw her down 70 times seven. <laughs> and the fragments they picked up and there were 12 baskets full. Now, whose wife shall she be in the days of judgment? There was no one in the council who felt qualified to question the candidate any further. He, was, he passed and he was hired. <laughs> oh boy. Oh, I, you know, it's pretty tough. Uh, you know, if you're a Bible student, it's amazing how often people misquote the Bible. And, uh, you know, we, I, I think politicians, as we enter this election year, I'm just worried about all the Bible quoting that they attempt to do. These speechwriters, man, somebody should at least check their work. You know what I'm saying? Or maybe there, some of these, you know, one, one I won't name the president, uh, but uh, maybe you'll know. One of our presidents recently said, the good book says, don't throw stones at glass houses. Um, you know, uh, uh, and that's not in the Bible. Um, also, uh, the way he also said, uh, make sure you're looking at the log in your eye before we're pointing out the moat in the other folks' eyes. Ah, uh, painful. Um, and I could go on and on about misquoting, but the only way to get the stories right is to rehearse them, to read them. Um, and like I've said before, repetition is the mother of all learning. So um, that's one thing that's fun about going through the harmony of the gospels. Here in Luke, we're covering several stories that um, we've covered in previous Monday, uh, you know, Matthew, Mark, now Luke, and we'll even do more in John. Um, they'll sound familiar, but they have different tones and different perspectives that are really helpful, but help on our uh, understanding of the scripture. And so uh, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. So doing what we're doing tonight is that which builds faith. And I think it's totally worth it. Well, let's begin here in chapter 19. It says in verse one, and Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. 
And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, which was the chief among the publicans, and he was rich. And he sought to see Jesus, who, was, uh, who he was, and could not for the press, because he was little of stature. Now, um, it's not because he didn't have a press pass that he couldn't get through here. It's the idea of the press of the crowd. The multitudes were, you know, crowded around Jesus. But Zacchaeus, being a wee little man, a wee little man was he, um, he couldn't get through. And everyone's like shoving him out of the way, you know. Um, and all that to say, little of stature, short, or as we would say today, vertically challenged uh, Zacchaeus was. Now, this is a great story. I love the story of Zacchaeus. I've loved it since I was a little kid, singing the song. Maybe you guys remember singing the song, Zacchaeus was a wee little man. Um, but, but there's some cool things about this story. Um, by the way, Charles Haddon Spurgeon in his famous Metropolitan Tabernacle in London uh, in the 1800s, this was the biggest church uh, anywhere uh, at any time. You know, no sound system, but you know, held thousands of people, uh, really quite a deal. But if you look at this one particular picture of the pulpit of the Metropolitan, this kind of helps with the, uh, the story a little bit. His pulpit was on that second tier and it was very ominous. You had these two spiral stairs kind of going up around. Well, there's a story in lectures to my students uh, that Spurgeon talks of, and it's kind of a funny story. He would make these young pastors in training come and do exercises here in the Metropolitan Tabernacle. And uh, he would uh, make them do, you know, impromptu type preaching. So uh, Spurgeon would have the guys all sit out there and he'd call a name and one of the guys would have to walk up and Spurgeon would be sitting in the front row. He's, you know, Spurgeon was a big dude. He, was, he even said, if you're not over 300 pounds, you're not a real preacher. Um, I love that guy. You can see why I like him. Um, but um, but, it's, but that, you know, they needed big kind of husky voices for those days. Well, um, the, the, the young man would get his name called. He'd have to walk next to Spurgeon and Spurgeon would hand him a little piece of paper with a scripture reference on it. And then he'd have to go up and from the point where he got the paper, as he went up the stairs, and by the time he got to the pulpit, he was supposed to start preaching on that scripture. Um, well, one such young victim of Spurgeon's training was a young guy who got that note and it was right here, you know, uh, Luke 19, the story of Zacchaeus, one through 10. Um, and he, he's walking up there and he slowly goes up those steps, you know, and then he stands behind the pulpit and he's shaking. Everybody knew he was nervous, um, terrified. He began to teach. He said, my sermon has three points today. I said, number one, Zacchaeus was a wee little man and I am a wee little man. Number two, Zacchaeus was up in a tree and I am up a tree. <laughs> number three, Zacchaeus told, uh, was told by Jesus to come down for there from there. And I think Jesus is telling me to do the same thing. And there he went back down the stairs. And <laughs> I love that. Uh, you know, there's a couple things about this story of Zacchaeus here um, that I'd like to show you. Zacchaeus, uh, um, there's some interesting kind of things that happen to him. Number one, notice with me, a man becomes a child. We see there in verse three, he sought to see Jesus. Um, uh, verse three, uh, uh, and could not for the press because he was a little of stature. But notice verse four, he ran before and climbed up in, uh, into a sycamore tree to see him for he was to pass that way. You know, Zacchaeus is a small little guy, but you know, um, keep in mind, this is like a rich sort of ruling kind of guy. Um, he, he's the head of the publicans. Now we don't even need to talk about publicans. We've been talking about them this whole time. Tax collectors, thieves, they were bad dudes. This is the head of those guys. Zacchaeus, even though he's a small guy in stature, he's kind of a big man on campus, if you know what I mean. 
But isn't it interesting, this, this sort of wealthy, um, you know, he was the chief among the publicans. Uh, you know, do you see people that are wealthy and in charge of everybody running around climbing trees and stuff like this? This is almost like childlike behavior, if you think about it. Um, and I think this is kind of cool. He's got that energy of a child. You know, a child will do things that oftentimes adults won't do. And I kind of see Zacchaeus, um, you know, carrying on that childlike sort of attempt to see Jesus. Um, you know, now being powerful and wealthy, uh, you know, known for being dishonest, um, partying hard. What was Zacch Zacchaeus's attitude when, he, when it came to Jesus? He ran to go see him. Um, again, you don't see that very often. Um, and, and, and who likes to run? Kids. Have you ever noticed how much kids run everywhere all the time, anytime, screaming all the way? Um, that's, that's what kids do. Well, Zacchaeus, he, he runs, climbs up a sycamore tree. He was curious. Remember what um, you know, Jesus taught us there in Matthew 18, 3. He said, verily I say to you, except you be converted and become as little children, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Remember in Luke chapter 18, verse 17, um, we saw last week, uh, verily I say unto you, whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child shall in no wise enter therein. So, um, so do some of you not want to become Christians, maybe people watch it online, um, because you view it as simple and childish? Um, well, uh, that's a problem. Um, does your intellectualism, uh, your, your wealth and your knowledge uh, keep you from Jesus, or does it help you draw you to Jesus? Um, you know, it's, it's interesting how people, uh, I've, I've, I've noticed over the years, most people don't come to faith by the scientific proof of the Bible. Now, one thing I do love about the Bible is the scientific proof that is behind the Bible. And I've done whole sermons on the science in the Bible. It's kind of profound, but I've not, almost never seen anyone come to know Jesus by understanding the you know, hermeneutical dispensational principles of the scriptures or you know, all the fancy uh, intellectual stuff. It really is like Jesus said, you gotta become like a little child. Um, and uh, oftentimes the childlike faith, um, the more you dive into the word, if you enter in with childlike faith, the more you dive into the word, the more you realize, wow, it's, it's heady and intellectually sound and, and uh, over the top amazing when it comes to science and stuff like that. Isn't it amazing the Bible says in Job 26, seven, long before man knew anything about space and where the earth was and how, you know, back in the Polynesian days, uh, you know, even, even a few hundred years ago, they thought that the earth was on a big tortoise in space. Um, in India, they thought it was on an elephant. The Greeks thought it was uh, held by Atlas on his back, you know, the, the earth. But long before all of those guys, Job 26, seven, he stretches uh, out the north over an empty space and hangs the earth upon nothing. That's what the Bible says. Like that's scientifically sound right there. And the Bible even talks about the earth being a, a sphere, um, not flat as so many people thought for so long, they should have read their Bibles better. But, but often first comes the childlike faith, then as you dive in, you'll get the intellectual stuff. Um, what keeps successful people from knowing Jesus? Um, I think it's this, not lowering themselves in needing help from anyone. That's the problem. If you think you've got it all together and I'm a self-made man and I'm wealthy and I'm powerful, Zacchaeus could have been that guy. He had made it as far as uh, you know, wealth-wise uh, and he was even in charge of all the other publicans. 
But um, be, becoming a Christian requires humility and a, um, a sense to know the need that you have. Um, one of the things that has to happen for the wealthy sometimes is to realize how unsatisfying wealth can be. Um, it's sad that there's people that maybe are still trying to figure that out, that you know, wealth is not really what makes you happy. In fact, the happy indicator versus the depression indicator shows that the wealthier you are, the more likely you are to be unhappy. That's an interesting thing to watch uh, in the world. So I love this. Here's this wealthy guy who's kind of a, um, you know, known to be a, a, the chief of all the sinners, uh, literally. Um, but he sort of acts like a child. I like that about this. Number two we see of Zacchaeus, we see a seeking man is found. Uh, let's look at verse five and six. It says, and when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said unto him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down. For today I must abide at thy house. And he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. Boy, this, this tells it all, doesn't it? That he comes down joyfully. He's like, wow, Jesus wants to come to my house. Um, what would happen if after church Jesus showed up and said, I'm coming to your house? You'd go, oh. Did, did we clean the house and did it, was it ready for Jesus? I mean, is he gonna see what, what we had on the TV and what, you know, what our reading material is on the coffee table and uh, you know, what music was, been, like coming to our house, ah, like what, does this freak him out? Um, but I, I think it's the key here is look at verse three. It says, um, he sought, verse three, he sought to see Jesus. Um, now this is interesting, um, but th this idea of seeking is a funny thing in the Bible. Um, because you say, well, that's cool. The Bible does talk about seeking. In fact, a lot. Look at Jeremiah 29, 13. It says, you shall seek me and find me when you shall search for me with all your heart. That's a promise of God's word. Isaiah 55, 6 says similar things. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. So Zacchaeus is doing that. That's Old Testament talking to the Jewish people. And here's Zacchaeus seeking the Lord. And those who seek me will find me, the Bible says. It's a promise. Um, but, but you know what's interesting here? Notice um, we're gonna um, we're gonna see here actually. Uh, let's let's jump ahead to verse ten. Let's let's seek, sneak ahead here. Verse ten, it says, "For the Son of Man is come to seek and save that which is lost." So, which one is the true seeker here? When you think about it, that's interesting. Did Zacchaeus seek the Lord, or did the Lord seek Zacchaeus? The answer might be yes, <laughs> as we like to do here. But there are some interesting things. Remember what Romans 3.11 says? It says, there's none that understandeth, there's none that seeketh after God. The idea is none, meaning no one ever. Um, no one seeks God as much as they should. No one with complete, true, pure heart seeks God. But um, I think if you have even a smidge of seeking, guess what? It seems to me that God is seeking you out. That's one of the things we see here. Zacchaeus is seeking Jesus, but it's Jesus who found him. Um, uh, I think that's kind of an, an important thing. Does anybody, is anybody old enough to remember the Billy Graham crusade um, bumper stickers back in the eighties? I found it. Does anybody remember that? Some of you older guys and gals might remember that yellow sticker on the back of cars that was, I found it. And the goal was to have people, you found what? And then you say, I found Jesus, you know, and I loved it. It was great. It was a neat little thing. 
But um, the more I thought about it and read the Bible, I was like, actually, I didn't find him. He found me. Uh, The Lord seeks out to save the lost. Um, Zacchaeus was technically seeking Jesus, but it was Jesus who found him. We'll see that there in verse 10 and and onward as we go. But it seems that God was working on Zacchaeus' heart long before he was there in the tree. So that's kind of an important thing. The Lord wants you to be saved. So he orchestrates the times and the situations where he seeks you out. Remember the father seeks those who are willing to worship in spirit and truth. This is what the Bible says about that. So um, that's why we uh, put this particular um, one on there. A seeking man is actually found. Shouldn't you say a seeking man finds? Well, a seeking man actually is found by Jesus. That's why that, that language, I put it that way in point number two. Point number three, um, we see uh, a small man becomes big. Um, now, when I say small man, he was of little stature, verse three, he was a, of little stature, it says. But um, he puts his dignity aside, climbs a tree, and uh, let's see what happens here in verse seven and eight. And it says, and when they saw it, they all murmured saying that he was gone to be a guest with a man that is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore him fourfold. What happens, man, have you ever noticed how quickly people change when they're hanging around with Jesus? Jesus was definitely the influencer, not the other people, not the other way around. Nobody influenced Jesus. Jesus was the influencer. It's like my dad used to say, Brett, you're either a hammer or a nail. Which one are you gonna be? And my, my question to all of us is the same thing. You can hang out with sinners, that's great, as long as you're the hammer, not the nail, not the one being influenced. As soon as Zacchaeus hangs out with Jesus, man, he starts changing his whole thing. Oh man, I'll give back four times over. If I've ripped anybody off, I will give them four times over what I've taken. I'm giving half my stuff, you know, away, he says. Um, and uh, if I've taken anything, uh, I'm gonna restore it. So, so suddenly we see this guy who's, um, you know, he's small in that he was a greedy, horrible tax collector, but now hanging out with Jesus, he's big, big hearted um, and big uh, in generosity. And this is what happens when you hang out with Jesus. It's a life changer, you know. Um, so um, this is pretty cool. By the way, um, you know, I, I like that... Um, that the small man becomes big. I've seen that in times. You know, when I was in Vanuatu once, I noticed all the, the, the uh, people that were newly saved from their pagan villages, that's what they call them, uh, pagan, where they do pagan dances and rituals and stuff like that. Um, but they all had pagan names when they were born. But when they became Christians, they all said, we don't wanna have pagan names. So they all started naming the church people uh, Bible characters. And I met this one little short guy. I met this one guy, they, they called him Job. And I said, uh, why did they name him Job? And they, oh, he's had a tough life. I was like, oh, okay, hi Job, poor guy. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, but then I met a short, short little guy. He was tiny, tiny little guy. And I said, what's your name? And he said, Zacchaeus. And I was like, totally, like, like Zacchaeus, a wee little man. But the more I got to know Zacchaeus there in a little town called Pongi, uh, I was just so blown away at how big he was. He was just a big hearted lover of Jesus Christ. I love that. And, and that's, that's how Jesus made Zacchaeus big. It was spiritually, he became big, if you would. Um, spiritually in our flesh, we're all a bunch of pipsqueaks. 
but um, spiritually, the Lord is the one who will um, enlarge your heart to the Bible, even talks about that, which is kind of cool. Men's standards are power, wealth, popularity. But um, do you remember, you remember the comparison of what, what's important to God? In fact, flip back to chapter 16, verse 15 again, because this, this kind of speaks to that. And Luke uh, 16, 15, and he, Jesus, said unto them, you are they which justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Um, humanity esteems population or popularity, um, wealth, power, those kinds of things. But now Zacchaeus is starting to see what matters to God, which makes him, instead of being a big man wealthy, he's a big man gracious and giving and kind. That's what the Lord does to us. So number one, you got a man who becomes a child. A seeking man is found by Jesus. A small man becomes big. But we also see another kind of interesting dichotomy here. Um, a poor man becomes rich. Well, Brad, I thought you said he was rich. Well, um, remember in the book of Revelation, chapter two and three, there were two churches, particularly Smyrna and Laodicea, but one church was very poor, but the Lord Jesus said to that church, but you're actually really rich. And then he said to the Laodicean church, um, you guys are really, really rich, but you're actually miserable, blind, naked, and poor. Um, in God's economy, rich and poor is a little different than the way we think of it. Um, and we see that here in verse nine. Uh, it says in, in verse nine, Jesus said unto him, this day is salvation come to this house. For as much as he is also a son of Abraham, for the son of man is come to seek and save that which is lost. Um, this guy becomes rich. Why? Because he's got eternity now in heaven because he becomes a son of Abraham. Um, this idea of the wealth in the church and Christians and stuff, um, centuries ago, because of indulgences charged by the Roman Catholic Church, the Pope and the Catholic Church became very, very rich. Um, but St. Francis of Assisi, you know, centuries ago, visited Rome and the Pope, uh, uh, the day that the Pope proudly showed St. Francis all the wondrous treasures of the Vatican. Referring to the story in the book of Acts, which Peter, known as the first Pope, according to the Catholics, spoke with a beggar in the Jerusalem area there, the Gate Beautiful, and told him that he had no money. And the Pope uh, pointed to the treasures to St. Francis and said, Peter can no longer say, silver and gold have I none. And St. Francis, his response was, neither can he say, take up your bed, rise up and walk. Um, St. Francis' point was that the institution of the church uh, of his day was prestigious and wealthy, perhaps, but it had lost the inner fire and power um, and dedication that made Christianity a world-transforming faith and, and uh, made a big point there. Did, um, did Zacchaeus live a wealthy life um, and begin to feel the shallowness and the, the worthlessness searching for something different? Um, I, I believe this is where we go back to that people that have wealth doesn't guarantee happiness. But what, 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 what makes you know, joy enter into his life? It says that he joyfully went to have Jesus come to his house. Suddenly he's got joy. And when did Zacchaeus become spiritually rich? I would say verse nine, when it says, and Jesus said to him, this day is, is salvation come to your house for as much as um, he also is the son of Abraham. 
So this is where salvation, salvation is what makes a per person wealthy, truly. Uh, rich in the Lord, rich in the things of God. That's what true wealth is really about, the Bible teaches. Now, um, there's a question here. Um, what is this whole thing being a son of Abraham? What does that have to do with anything? People think that somehow, well, because he's a Jew, I guess he's got salvation. So Jews are just automatically saved. That's a wrong interpretation of this. And, but this is doctrinally important. Um, you know, he was not saved because um, he gave his money back too, by the way. Some people, the, the works-based people say, see, this guy was saved because he gave all the money that he ripped off back. And so it's the works that he did that saved him. Well, the rest of the Bible, we know it teaches that that's not the case. We need to know that. So um, what is this thing about being a son of Abraham? What does that have to do with anything? Well, do you remember in the Old Testament, how was Abraham saved? Right, it says there in Genesis 15, six, and he, Abraham, believed in the Lord and he, the Lord, counted it to him, Abraham, for righteousness. Now, Paul the apostle went on to explain this further in Romans chapter four, verses three and three, five. For what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. So he's quoting from Genesis 15 there. But he goes on in verse four. Now, to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. In other words, Paul's saying, don't make the mistake of thinking it's doing uh, works that, that you know, rewards you with the grace of God. Um, that's you working off a debt that, that, that's not part of the plan. But um, the person saved, to him that worketh not um, as much, but believes on him that justifies the ungodly. We are made righteous through faith, um, uh, belief, uh, even as Abra Abraham was believed God and it was counted him righteous. That's why he's called the son of Abraham here, not just to be a Jew, but that belief that he has. The same belief is what um, Zacchaeus seems to have. He came to a true belief. Giving money back, by the way, I think was a fruit of the belief that he had in Jesus Christ. Um, and this really answers a, a big question and people debate this and churches and the Catholics and the Protestants have argued this one. Are you saved by grace through faith or do you have to do stuff to inherit the kingdom of God? And um, you know, a lot of times throughout the centuries, Catholicism has really made a point as, oh yeah, you're saved by grace through faith. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you also have to do stuff and you have to be baptized in the Catholic church. You have to go to mass, you have to go to confessional, you have to sell indulgences over the centuries for people to help, you know, like there's, there's, there was all kinds of things you had to do that becomes more works-based faith. Um, and so some people would use this as an argument for that. Um, are you saved by doing good deeds? Now I'll tell you, this is, there's, there's a couple scriptures that I'd like to kind of quickly cover that are really important. Would you flip over, keep your finger here, flip over to Ephesians chapter two, um, verses six through 10. Um, this is a good section for you to be familiar with. You should always kind of know this area. That's why I'm having you turn there in your Bible so you can know where it is on the page. Um, but it's Ephesians chapter two, um, where it says this in, in, in verse six. Ephesians two, verse six. It says, and he hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. So we get to go to heaven, sit in heavenly places by his grace. So that through the ages, we can say, wow, look what the Lord has done. Not look what we have done. Verse eight goes on, for 
By grace are you saved, through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works, um, lest any man should boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. So we're not disconnecting works completely from uh, a person who's saved. It's just works that doesn't save you. But the thing we read here is people that are saved that'll promote good works in their life. That's part of the fruit of being saved. And we, we gotta be careful not to put the cart before the horse. People do that. You gotta do good works and hopefully you're good at ways you're bad and your good works will be what saves you. That's totally off. Notice what he says, you're saved by grace through faith, not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast, but we're a work in progress. We are his workmanship, verse uh, um, not 10, created in Christ Jesus unto, unto good works. That's, what, that's the deal. Now, I'll show you where some of the big confusion comes in. Uh, since we're turning, would you flip over to James? Go, go one more turn here, uh, maybe an eighth of an inch to your page, toward the end of your Bible. Um, right after Hebrews is James, James chapter two. We'll add this to our little list here. James 2, 14 through 26. This is where the, the contention lies with a lot of people that say, you're saved by good works. You have to have works. Um, and, it, and it's here, James chapter two, verse 14. It says, what doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he has faith and have not works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, notwithstanding you give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? Even so, faith, if it had not works, is dead, being alone. Yea, a man may say, thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee thy, my faith by my works. Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. But wilt thou... O vain man, will thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works um, when he had offered Isaac, his son, upon the altar? Um, seest thou how faith wrought with his works and by works was faith made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith, Abraham believed God and it was imputed unto him for righteousness and he was called the friend of God. You see then how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. Likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she had received the messengers and had sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is also dead. Do you see how this causes confusion? James is saying some things that are pretty strong here. And, and some people say, that's contradictory. You know, James and Paul disagree when you read Ephesians 2 and you read James chapter 3. But I, I really want you to know um, this is not contradictory. It's only affirming. If you take a careful read and a careful study of what James is saying here, he's saying, um, you know, like when, you know, one of the hardest ones perhaps is, you know, where, you know, uh, well, didn't he sacrifice Isaac? And that was a work uh, that kind of proved his faith. But see, here's the thing you have to remember. Um, that was the faith that was producing good works. It was, a, it was the cart before the horse thing. Faith, Abraham had faith first, 
And then because of his faith that saved him, then he had the works that followed. In fact, uh, you know, the sacrificing attempt of, and was proving that he had faith um, when he was willing to sacrifice uh, Isaac, which he didn't. God provided himself a lamb, uh, which was pretty cool. So here's, here's what James is saying. He's not saying, you know, some people say, <clears throat> you know, uh, James is saying it's, it's works with faith. Others say, no, Paul says it's, it's um, faith that shows works. But here's the, the way I, I think of it. Faith is not, you know, it's not faith and works. That's where people make a mistake. It's not faith and works that saves you. It's not faith or works that saves you. It's faith that works. Um, that proves that you're saved. It's faith that works is kind of the idea. That's kind of a way to look at believing in Jesus, accepting Christ um, is faith. Um, and then the, the natural byproduct of that will be uh, good works. Um, are you perfect in good works from that day forward when you're saved by faith? No, um, which also proves Paul's point. We're not saved by our works. Even Paul would struggle with sin. There will be good works in your life um, the evidence will be true uh, and there if you have true faith in Christ. Now, if you're a person saying, yeah, 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 I'm saved by grace through faith and you don't have any good works at all, James is right. You should be a little nervous about that. Do you have real faith? Did you ever have really saving faith? Because if you claim to be saved by grace through faith, but, but you, you know, see someone who's hungry and you just kind of go, yeah, whatever, and your life is full of no works, that might be a sign that you never really had true saving faith to begin with. So James is making a really important point, but it's not against Paul. He's, he's agreeing with Paul. It's just that he's making the point that a true Christian, a person who's a believer in Christ, there will be evidence of that faith through works. And it's a big difference. Uh, so, you know, it's all about being saved by grace, but then you, you see the works as a byproduct. Um, some people say, no, 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 we got to do, do, do. Don't forget, Jesus said it's done, done, done. It is finished. The work of salvation on the cross was a finished work. So, um, so back to our Zacchaeus story, if you go back with me to Luke 19, I know we're doing a long thing on this, but I think it's important because people use the Zacchaeus story to say, see, he was saved by his good works. Jesus even said so. We're right there. This day, verse nine, is salvation come to this house. Why? Because he gave his money. He's gonna give his money back? No. Um, I believe he was saved by grace through faith, but we're already starting to see in Zacchaeus's life the fruit that comes from that. So good fruit comes from true faith. That's kind of the, the way that goes. It's so important to understand that. Now for a parable, verse 11. It says, and as they heard these things, he added and spake a parable because he was nigh to Jerusalem and because they thought that the kingdom of God should immediately appear. Uh, this is, remember, you know, the, the people thought, oh, Jesus is the king of the Jews. He's going to come and save us from the Romans and set up his empire. But we know he came to die on a cross for the sins of the world. And then his second coming, the second coming, which they didn't understand, would be where he sets up his kingdom. That's still yet to happen in the world's history. Um, kind of important. Well, verse 12, he said, therefore, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. Now, just uh, so you can follow along, the nobleman is Jesus here in the story. Uh, a certain nobleman went into a far country to re re receive for himself a kingdom and to return. That's important to note. Well, verse 13, and he called his 10 servants and delivered them 10 pounds and said unto them, occupy until I come. Boy, we could do a whole sermon on that. 
Um, this is a sermon about the coming kingdom of Christ. What are we supposed to do until the kingdom comes? Or to occupy. What does occupy mean here? It means to do what you're supposed to do until the, the coming of Christ. Be busy about your normal work and be faithful in it. Um, you know, uh, in, in studying of eschatology and Bible prophecy, some, some people accuse, you know, pre-trib rapture people. They just sit around and just look for the coming of Christ and do nothing. Well, I think that's a false accusation. The pre-trib people that I know are busy preaching the gospel and sharing the good news and doing all that we can to live in this life until Christ comes. There was some kind of crazy people back in the 80s who um, said, hey, Jesus is gonna rapture his church. So they charged up their credit cards. And, and I said, hey, no problem. I don't even have to pay this back because I'm gonna be raptured, you know? And it was just kind of dumb, uh, people acting stupidly. And I can understand the accusation there. They weren't occupying until the coming of the Lord. Um, you and I are called to just live our lives, do our best, serve Christ, walk with him, preach the gospel. We're supposed to occupy until he comes. That's important here. So he, he gives these seven, uh, 10, ten uh, servants, 10 pounds. Um, um, you know, here translated a pound is 12 ounces uh, and a half, which according to five, uh, five shillings, the ounce is three pounds, two shillings and a sixpence for, for those of you who are wondering about your Bible numbers there. Um, but he says, occupy them. But verse 14, his citizens hated him and sent him a message after him saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. Isn't that interesting? This is the same words they would say in a few days. In a few days, the people that, that were, you know, Palm Sunday and up, which we'll see here in a few minutes, uh, a few days later, say, we will not have this man rule over us. Same thing. So it's in his parable here. We will not have this man reign over us. Verse 15. And it came to pass when he was returned, having received the kingdom, then he commanded these servants to be called unto him, to whom he had given the money, that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. Then came the first, saying, Lord, thy pound hath gained ten pounds. And he said unto him, well, good thou, uh, and thou good servant, because thou hast been faithful in a very little, um, have thou authority over 10 cities. And the second came saying, Lord, thy pound hath gained five pounds. And he likewise said unto him, be thou also over five cities. And another one came saying, Lord, behold, here's thy pound, which I have kept and laid up in a napkin. For I feared thee, because thou art an austere man, thou takest up that thou layest not down, and reapest that thou did not sow. And he said unto him, Out of thine own mouth will I judge thee, thou wicked servant. Thou knewest that I was an austere man, taking up that which I laid not down, and reaping that which I did not sow. Therefore, then, wherefore then gavest not thou thy money into the bank? At my coming, I might have required mine own with you. At least I would have got you know interest if you'd put it in a bank at least. Verse 24, and he said unto them that stood by, take, um, take from him the pound and give it to him that hath the 10 pounds. And they said unto him, Lord, he hath 10 pounds. For I say unto you that unto everyone which hath shall be given. And from him that hath not, even that he hath shall be taken away from him. Now, some of you are like, boy, this sounds familiar. Um, this is not to be confused with the parable of the talents in Matthew. They're different stories, similar though, in some ways. Um, you know, uh, the talents and the pounds are different measurements. Um, but here, the main thing that's different here is everybody, if you remember, people got different amounts in the parable of the talents in Matthew, but here everybody got equal amounts. 
Um, the parable of the talents, you know, Matthew, whatever the Lord's given to you, uh, some more or less, it means be faithful in what you have and how you use it. The parable of the pounds here in Luke, it seems more of an equal opportunity of giving, um, but they were judged in what they did with what they were given in more of an equal sort of way. Now, some people today, especially in our culture, uh, equity, um, and you know, there should be equity, but it's funny because the Bible actually handles both of those, inequity and equity. But one of the things that we've all been given, there's been several things we've been given the same amount. Um, one of those is, is, for example, time. Everybody's got 24 hours in a day. How do you use that time? Ephesians 5 tells us, you know, in verse 15 and 16, walk circumspectly, not as fools, but, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. We're told you and I are supposed to redeem time. That's something we've all been given, 24 hours in a day. Are you using that time well? Um, you know, uh, the average American spends seven hours looking at a screen, whether it's their iPhone or TV or computer, seven hours. That's uh, like half your waking hours uh, you know, looking at screen. Uh, do you feel refreshed after looking at your iPhone for hours and hours? Do you walk away going, oh, that was time well spent. Or just go, what have I done? Where did all the time go? What a waste of time. Um, you know, we gotta be careful about this time. Um, you know, um, sometimes it's better to do something more uh, others oriented and knowing people, not just knowing about them on Instagram, but know people for real, like, like engage with real people. Um, what, what's in, in, you know, so you got time, that's, that's an equal thing that we all have. Also, um, you know, um, possessions, what about possessions? Well, as it turns out, God requires the same amount when we talk about percentage. God requires 10% of our possessions as a tithe unto the Lord. That's what he asks of us. Um, so it kind of levels the playing field. The more you make, the more you give to the Lord. Um, and that's a good thing. We kind of have to say, are we, are we giving back to the Lord that which is his? These guys gave back to the, to the master, the, the money. Another thing you and I have equal opportunity on is the gospel. We can all share the gospel. We all have, a, if you're a Christian, you have a saving knowledge of, of Jesus. How are you doing? Are you a good steward of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Have you been giving it out or are you just putting it in a napkin and hiding it? See, there's some interesting things about that. Um, so, um, you know, you'll be rewarded based on, according to the kingdom age, on how you lived your life on earth. Um, there are different levels. The one guy that gained, you know, 10 pounds, uh, he, 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 get to, he gets to be over 10 cities. The guy that gained five pounds, he gets to be over five cities. Um, the guy that gained none, well, well, we'll read more about that in a minute. Um, heaven's gonna be great, everybody's gonna enjoy it, but how you live in eternity will be based somehow on what you did in this life um, and how you use this life and this, the time that we had. Um, so what happens to those not obedient to the nobleman, uh, to Jesus in the story here? Well, we pick it up in verse 27. But those, mine enemies, uh, which uh, would not that I should reign over them, bring hither and slay them before me. Ooh. Um, we talked about this, by the way, in recent study about hell. Um, this is where Jesus uh, is um, loving, merciful, compassionate, but he's also righteous and he's a judge. Don't, don't miss that part of Jesus. So very important to know, um, some people won't talk about verse 27. We did a whole sermon on that two Sundays ago. Uh, I, would, I would refer you to that teaching. Well, verse 28, and when he had thus spoken, he went before ascending up to Jerusalem and it came to pass when he was come nigh to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples. 
Um, one of the fun things about going to Israel, if we ever can get back there, um, is we come from this same direction uh, as a tour group. We go up over by Bethlehem and we come up over on our highway and then you come over the Mount of Olives and then you look down in Jerusalem, it's breathtaking. Uh, it's a view that you'll never forget. Uh, seeing the Temple Mount right over the Mount of Olives. It's quite a, quite a dramatic thing. That's what Jesus is doing here. Verse 30. So he goes, um, calls to him, he sent two of his disciples saying, go ye into the village over against you in the which at your entering you shall find a colt tied whereon you uh, yet an, uh, never a man sat. Loose him and bring him hither. And if any man ask you why you loose him, thus shall you say unto him, because the Lord hath need of them. Um, and when they had that were sent, went their way and found even as he had said unto them. And as they were loosing the colt, the owners thereof said unto them, why loose ye the colt? And they said, the Lord hath need of him. And they brought him to Jesus and they cast their garments upon the colt and they set Jesus thereon. And as they went, they spread their clothes in the way. And when he was come near, even now at the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. Question, why were they rejoicing? They were rejoicing for all the works that they had seen. That's an important thing to note. They were not rejoicing because Jesus is the Messiah. They were rejoicing because of all the works that they had seen. They're, they're, they're saying, what they're about to say is not because, wow, we, we see Jesus coming, dying on the cross for the sins of the world, but they see something very different. And, and so they're rejoicing kind of for the wrong, for the mighty works that they had seen, not necessarily because Jesus, they knew him to be the Messiah. But verse 38 goes on saying, blessed be the king that comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees from among the multitude said unto him, Master, rebuke thy disciples. And he answered and said unto them, I tell you that if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. <laughs> Interesting. Um, this is a, a, a thing I almost wish they would have stopped saying it. I would have liked to have seen that rock concert of the stones crying out. Um, uh, you know, they're, they're, this is similar, but a little different um, the, to Luke chapter two. Luke chapter two, glory to God in the highest and peace on earth, goodwill toward men. They're saying glory to God in the highest here in, in verse 38, but they're not saying peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Why? Because they don't see Jesus, the peace on earth until his second coming. That's kind of an important part of that to note. Um, but why rebuke them? Um, um, you know, why, why did the Pharisees want Jesus to rebuke them? Because they were calling him the king. And the Pharisees were saying, he is not the king. And, you know, the Romans are not going to like this, what you guys are doing. Um, and so, uh, as it turns out, even the stones would cry out. Uh, by the way, the stones are crying out archaeologically. Uh, I love how all the digs in Jerusalem continue to confirm the Bible and even more importantly, confirming Jesus and the things that happened in the first century. Um, you know, there's so many college professors saying, oh, Jesus is just an invented person. You know, there's, you know, let's talk about their historical Jesus on Discover Channel, History Channel. And they all basically say, you know, he'd never really existed. You know, so they always kind of downplay the whole thing. But the stones are crying out that Jesus really did do all the things. Um, <laughs> uh, you, this, this is kind of an interesting uh, thing that we saw. I'll just show you a picture here. Um, does anybody see what that says? 
Huh? Notice how this whole side is getting it, but nobody else is. There's a reason. If you look at it sideways, you'll see it better. But it says the stones will cry out. Do you guys see it now? It's not just a pile of rocks. Uh, there, here's some helpful for you that uh, struggle. <laughs> but um, but uh, you say, Brett, where'd you get this? I don't know, I just thought it was kind of cool. Um, and it was made by artificial intelligence. So it's from Satan. But uh, no, I'm just, just kidding, just kidding. Um, but uh, the stones will cry out. I thought this was an interesting little meme. But, um, but here in Luke 19, when I, when I think about that, um, you know, Jesus is saying even creation is the idea. Uh, even the part of creation that's not alive. I mean, we think of stones as dead. Even the stones will cry out. I believe when we see the millennial kingdom come, we're going to see all the trees of the fields clap their hands. What is that going to look like? And what will it look like for stones to cry out? Um, not Mick Jagger. Uh, I'll just say that for now. Well, anyway, back to our text here, Luke 41, uh, 1941. And when he was come near, he beheld the city and wept over it, saying, if thou hadst known even thou, at least in this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace, but now they are hid from thine eyes. Now, I'm not gonna go into this in depth because I've done really long studies on this, but I wanna refer you to them. Um, this is, the, how question, quiz time. How should they have known this very day when Jesus is writing what was going on here? Does anybody remember? Daniel chapter nine in a prophecy called the, a prophecy called the, 70 weeks of Daniel, good, okay, you guys, you guys do have it. It's an amazing prophecy, Daniel 9.25, I'll just refer you really quickly. Know therefore, understand that from the going forth, the commandment to restore and build Jerusalem to the Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks, three score and two weeks, and the street shall be built again and the wall even in troublous times. Um, the week here is called a heptad or a seven year period, not a week of days, but of seven years. Uh, 69 weeks, it says here, uh, is, um, you know, uh, times seven is 483 years. Uh, and then if you have the 77s or 77 year periods, it's 490 years. So what, what happened? Well, it says from the commandment to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, what's fun about this, I'll just quickly say this, Artaxerxes gave the commandment after the Babylonian captivity, there was a commandment, March 14th, 445 BC, Artaxerxes gave the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. And by the way, if you're gonna do this and get out calendars and stuff, you have to get the Gregorian, not the Gregorian calendar, the lunar calendar that the Jews use. Um, and there's some leap years you have to figure out and figure in. But if you do the math on this, fast forward March 14th, 445 BC, 483 years, 1, 173,880 days forward. It brings you to April 9th, AD 32, which happens to be Palm Sunday. Um, the very time Jesus is riding down Palm Sunday Road when he says, oh, Jerusalem, if you'd only known in this thy day what belongs to your peace. If you'd only known what's going on here, how could they have known this mysterious, most powerful 70-week prophecy of Daniel? Um, and, you know, um, why is Jesus weeping here? I believe because they should have known what was going on. He knew they would end up in real trouble. He's gonna talk about that in a second. Um, about 40 years after this, the Romans are gonna come and crush and even slaughter 600,000 Jews. Some say uh, close to a million Jews were slaughtered in AD 70 where the temple would be destroyed. Let's see as Jesus continues here. In verse 43, it says, for the day shall come upon thee that thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee 
and compass thee round and keep thee in on every side and shall lay thee even with the ground. What does the idiom laying you even with the ground mean? You'll be dead. You're laying on the ground. That's, that's, that's kind of funny. It's not funny, but it is funny. You'll be laying even with the ground and thy children within thee and they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another because thou knowest, uh, knewest not the time of thy visitation. They should have known the time of Jesus' coming because of Bible prophecy. Um, but, you know, I hope uh, Jesus isn't weeping over the church today. I, I wouldn't be surprised if he is, though. Even as he wept over these Jews who didn't know the days they were living, just like I think a lot of the church today doesn't know the days that we're living. Oh, you Athey Creekers are all into Bible prophecy and you're into doing a prophecy update, you know, and once a month. And I get criticism for that, which is kind of funny to me. Um, doesn't bother me. It just it kind of saddens me that there's churches that say, yeah, prophecy's too divisive. We shouldn't talk about Bible. Let's talk about things that really matter for today. Like, you know, in, uh, you know, uh, you know, the, the purpose-driven life, you know, Rick Warren said, you know, Bible prophecy is a waste of time. Uh, we should be more concerned about, you know, the here and now, um, you know, and, and it's really unfortunate that he said that because that's the attitude of a lot of the church today, honestly. I think that's what makes Jesus weep when we blow off the, the, the days, the times and the seasons that we're seeing. So Jesus is saying, man, because you guys weren't aware, you're gonna be caught unaware and AD 70 is coming. Now he didn't say it that way, but he said the time's coming soon. 40 years after he says this, um, almost a million Jews were slaughtered by the Romans. Jerusalem was totally crushed. The temple is crushed and the Jews would be scattered for 2000 years. I mean, it's really a radical, radical part. That's why Jesus is weeping. Oh, if you should have known the time of your visitation. Now, the Bible says you and I don't know the day or the hour when the rapture of the church is gonna happen or even the second coming of Christ, but the times and the seasons you will know. So we won't know the April 6th you know, date kind of thing. Well, we will know the times and the seasons according to the Bible. Well, um, before we move on uh, to this, uh, I, there's one little thing I wanna bring up and that is, um, why did the Lord choose to use a donkey uh, in this? Um, I, always, I always like to ask this question. Does, does the Lord need anything from you? See, I'm tempted to say, no, he doesn't need anything. But you just controverted Jesus right there. Did, did you see what, look at verse 31. Let's back up again. It says, if any man ask you, why do you lose him? Thus shall you say to him, because the Lord hath need of him. Jesus needed someone's little colt of a donkey. Did he really need it? it says it right here. Um, why did G this, this, this raises kind of an interesting question. You know, why did Jesus choose a donkey? Um, you know, I think um, uh, if I were God, I would have given him a mighty steed, a black stallion. No, maybe a white stallion because, you know, purity and all that. Um, you know, it's funny to study. Uh, it's actually an interesting study of all, you know, all, of all the horses that are famous. Probably, um, you know, that famous one is Greek general named Philip had a little son, desperately wanted to ride horses, but was too small. So his father made one of the slaves be his horse. And the slave had to uh, carry this little, Philip's little son around the house on his back. The slave was like on all fours, you know, clopping clop all around the house. Um, the name of that uh, slave was Oxhead. Um, otherwise known as, in the Greek, Bucephalus, which maybe starts to help you know the story. The little kid grew up to be a guy named Alexander who was given a mighty black stallion uh, by his father. 
Uh, and he named it after a slave that rode him around the house when he was a little kid, Bucephalus, Oxhead. Um, but you know, the funny thing is, historically, Alexander was famous for riding this mighty black horse, you know, Bucephalus. In fact, when he died, uh, they gave it a full honors military funeral, um, and they even named the the city after where the horse was uh, was uh, was buried, uh, Bucephalia. Uh, uh, that's that's where his horse was buried. What a contrast, Alexander the Great and Jesus. Alexander, you know, he he, he died at thirty three ish. Jesus died at 33. Alexander rode in on a, he rode into Jerusalem on Bucephalus, by the way. Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a little colt of a donkey. Um, you know, Alexander had tons of people die for him. Jesus died for tons of people. Um, Alexander conquered the whole world through death and brutality. Jesus conquered the world by his own death on the cross. Um, we could just go on and on the compare and contrast, but there's nothing glorious about riding a donkey, let alone a colt of a donkey. I've seen people ride donkeys. It's not impressive. You can't look cool and ride a donkey at the same time. Like we rent donkeys sometimes in Petro and some of our people get tired. Like, oh, I'll rent a donkey. I'm like, go ahead, dock yourself out. Um, and sure enough, like, it's, like it's, it's not cool at all. So why did Jesus uh, choose to use a donkey? Let me just suggest a few things. Number one, for sure, to fulfill God's word. If you know, Zechariah 9, 9, rejoice so greatly, daughter of Zion, shout, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, thy king comes to thee. He is just having salvation, lowly riding uh, upon an ass, upon the colt of a foal of an ass. Another reason, by the way, why they should have known that this is thy day, not only the Daniel 70 week prophecy, but also the, the idea that he's coming in on a colt of a donkey. Had they known their Bible prophecy, they would have known, oh, this is it. Um, number two, to uh, reveal God's heart. Um, he came down meek and lowly, humbled like a servant. Um, Jesus said that in Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30, I am meek and lowly of heart. He proved that. He doesn't come in on a mighty Bucephalus. He comes in meekly. I think it shows the heart of the Lord as he's reaching to humanity. Number three, it's a good picture for God's people. He's using something others would deem unusable, a colt of a foal of a donkey. Um, and the Lord has need of it. Does the Lord need anything? The knee-jerk answer that many of us have is, of course not, Jesus doesn't need anything. But isn't it funny, Jesus borrowed someone's donkey to ride to Jerusalem. He borrowed a boat from someone else to preach from. He borrowed five loaves and two fishes from a little kid. He borrowed a tomb to be resurrected from. Like we could go on and on of all the things Jesus needed to make the whole story of salvation and redemption for humanity come to pass. The idea is he, he, he wants to use, he needs you because he wants you to be used as part of the deal. Um, you know, think of all the things God could have done. He could have, instead of a donkey, he could have hovered and floated in to Jerusalem, like, like, uh, like Iron Man or something. Um, he could have done that, but he didn't. He, he needed the cult of a donkey. I think that's interesting. So God has chosen us to work through um, uh, to do his, his bidding. Um, Brett, are you suggesting that we're compared to a donkey? Well, in some ways it's better than a sheep, wouldn't you say? Did you know we are compared to donkeys in the Bible? Uh, here's a big one, Exodus 13, 13, amazing story. Every first thing of an ass thou shalt redeem with a lamb, and if thou wilt not redeem it, then thou shalt break his neck, and all the firstborn of, every, of, of man among thy children shalt thou redeem. This is a uh, Exodus, you know, uh, Moses law, 
that came out where basically uh, the donkey would have its neck broken unless it was redeemed by the lamb. This is a beautiful picture um, of that. So all that to say, um, Palm Sunday. So apart from Jesus, we're just a donkey and we need, and, but Jesus will use us. Uh, even our best actions are like filthy rags, Isaiah 64 says. Um, but still the Lord says, I wanna use you. Even in your smallness, in your meekness, I wanna use you. Well, let's finish up this chapter and call it a night. Verse 45, and he went into the temple and began to cast them out that sold therein and them that bought, saying unto them, it is written, my house is the house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And he taught daily in the temple, but the pre, chief priests and the scribes and the chief of the people sought to destroy him and could not find what they might do for all the people were very attentive to hear him. Um, this is interesting, you know, um, uh, paid by Annas the high priest, priest you know, tons of money was, was being taken in by ripping off the people. They'd charge exorbitant costs for sacrifice and, and anybody that came and pilgrim, were pilgrims to Jerusalem, they would bring their little lamb from, you know, their town and they'd say, oh, that lamb's not good enough. You need to buy one of our lambs to be sacrificed here in Jerusalem. And then they'd charge these huge amounts of money for the lambs. And they were ripping off the people, changers of money, like currency exchange, but they would have a huge rate of exchange. They were just ripping off the people. Um, and, and by the way, Jesus, uh, says, make not my father's house, um, you know, the, my, uh, you know, a den of thieves in one of the other gospels. And he said this in the court of Gentiles. This is kind of cool for you Bible students because the Jews didn't even consider that part of the father's house, but Jesus did include the court of Gentiles. That's kind of cool too. Um, there's more, we read about this, the scourge that he made. We read about that in, you know, John, the gospel of John. But um, before we go though, you know, it says, um, you know, there, uh, it says in last phrase, verse 48, for all the people were very attentive to hear him. The ESV, I think it says, for all the people were hanging on his words. Like these guys wanted to kill Jesus, the, the, the religious guys, but the people were like, wow, what is, what's he gonna say next? And they were excited. Um, you know, when Jesus makes claims about being God, you, you may get hung up on that. Um, when I'm having a hard time, can I get hung up on the words of Jesus? See, these religious guys were hung up on the words of Jesus, but the true seekers, the people that were listening, they were hanging on every words. I hope you're more of a hanging on his words, not hung up by his words. Um, very important. But as we continue uh, to go through Luke here from chapter 19, now on to 20, we're gonna go from bad to worse. Uh, from what we just left off on, it's gonna get worse. So hang on to your hats. We'll, we'll cover that next week. Lord, we're thankful for this passage once again. Um, I, pray, I pray, Lord, that we would be a people that are ready and watching, waiting for your return when you, when you come, that we wouldn't be caught off guard like these people in those day at Palm Sunday, but that we'd be knowledgeable of your word, aware of what your word teaches about the coming kingdom. We pray as you taught us to pray, thy kingdom come. I will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We look forward to that day, Lord. And so bless these people who've carved out this time for the Wednesday night, Lord, just to study your word. May it bring good fruit in their lives. I pray that we'd just continue to walk with you and pray blessing on each person. And as uh, this crew here in the building goes home, keep them safe and get them home safe tonight, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.